Welcome back to the Web3 show. As always, with me today is Galactic Q and your guy in Tradfire. Um, obviously, the landscape and the world we currently find ourselves, um, I, I think it's only appropriate that I, I kick off these episodes, uh, this episode, in a bit of a different manner uh, with everything happening in Russia and Ukraine. I know I usually we usually crack some jokes, start off with some banter. Um, but I thought it's only appropriate for today that we do pledge our support for those in the Ukraine and Russia who are suffering emotionally, physically, and financially from the current conflict. The reality is, is war is an ugly thing, and it really puts into perspective um, everything and the and the life we all have in the West. And uh, yeah, I, I'm hoping and praying that everything will be resolved uh, peacefully and with as little loss of life as possible. And uh, you know, not to dampen things too much before we do dive in. I think it's important just to to spare a moment uh, for everything uh, for for those uh, in in the midst of the current conflict. Um, so today we're going to talk about the markets and particularly focused on Russia and conflict, uh, Ru- uh, Russia and Ukraine, and how that uh, conflict is sort of filtering down into crypto. And as our title, episode title suggests, uh, we'll be focusing mainly on, you know, crypto in a time of conflict, which we've never actually seen, you know, and this is the, what's happening in Russia and Ukraine is the most amount of sort of heads on conflict the Europe has seen since World War II. So it's unprecedented times and it's going to be interesting to dive in with uh, the wizards of Web3 today uh, on what that it, that's going to hold for crypto in the long term. So, Johns, uh, take us through the market update for this week. It's uh, For the last week, it's been absolutely crazy. We had the dump, you know, as Russia invaded Ukraine last week, and now Bitcoin's sitting at 43K. And um, last thing before we do dive in, we'll probably make the disclaimer again, is that we are not at all geopolitical experts, political experts, um, will be talking about Russia and Ukraine, but trying to frame it as much as possible in light of crypto and everything going on there where our expertise lies, our limited expertise lies. Um, There are plenty of other resources between the All In podcast and many other articles documenting everything that's happened in in Russia and Ukraine currently within the conflict. Um, but John's maybe in your market update when you dive in, maybe just break down the key events from a financial standpoint, from a market standpoint, just to catch up anyone. Uh, basically, the cliff notes of of what's happened. Cool. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's it's good to be back, guys. I really enjoy these these podcasts weekly. They've become kind of a highlight of my week. I won't lie. <laughs> For sure. In dark times, For it's sure, a it's yeah. a good it's a good highlight. And I mean, guys, we hit 100k, uh, 100 subs, not 100k. Oh my god, we hit 100,000. 100, <laughs> Imagine. <subs. laughs> that, was, that was a good one. No, but I'm, yeah, I'm stoked, guys. It's, it's, yeah. Anyway, so Hun- 100k coming so, soon. 100, 100k coming soon. Tuesday, boys. <laughs> so basically, yeah, what what we saw, guys, last week is obviously, you know, over the last um, couple couple weeks, there's been a lot of FUD in the markets, you know, we've had the, the Canada, the, the protests in Canada, we've had, you know, the Russia-Ukraine tensions, which ultimately led to Russia invading the Ukraine last week, Thursday, um, in the early hours, 
for us in South Africa time. Um, and ultimately what we saw was a massive market pullback. Uh, we had Bitcoin wick all the way down back to just below 34K. Um, I think it went to, yeah, 34K on the dot actually. Um, and we had traditional markets pullback. We had just a general pullback across the board. But what is a very interesting thing to realize is, you know, we haven't had a lot of uh, wars that have given us purchase opportunities. And if you just go back in history and look at a lot of the, the major conflicts, for example, the Vietnam War, the Gulf War, the Afghanistan War, the Iraqi War, the Crimean Crisis, and all those big events, the day of invasion has always been the bottom of the market and signaled a massive trend reversal, um, despite the Afghanistan war just being a major uh, dead cap bounce, we actually had massive rallies after the other ones. So basically a lot of people used the invasion as the buy the dip opportunity. Um, and obviously you guys know from the price today, um, we are sitting around $43,000. So let's say we had a you know $10,000 candle pull, pump basically over the last couple of days. And, you know, this has largely been in light to the market pricing everything in. You know, everyone knows that there's interest rate hikes coming. Everyone knows that inflation is running. Everyone knows that Russia has invaded the Ukraine. There's not a lot of surprises left to happen. So the market has kind of been in this downtrend for a long time and has largely priced things in. And what we're starting to realize now, and I've just got a few tweets to highlight what we've seen, is basically there's a massive run for Bitcoin. And we've seen that largely in the spike of price, especially yesterday and today. And basically yesterday, looking at on-chain metrics, the number of accounts with over 10,000 Bitcoin had the biggest spike it's ever had in the history of Bitcoin. The number of wallets holding over 1,000 Bitcoin, same, had the biggest uh, spike it's ever had in the history of Bitcoin. The only other comparable spike was in 2019. And the exact same for the number of accounts holding 100 Bitcoin. And basically the assumption being made across the board in the general crypto market is that Russian oligarchs, Russian citizens, um, and Ukrainian citizens and people who are being financially restricted due to geopolitical tensions are shifting towards censorship resistant currencies. And this is honestly becoming one of the biggest sort of um, visualizations for the power of what Bitcoin offers. So, you know, obviously there's downside to that as well. If, you know, all these sanctions being placed on Russia are leading, you know, oligarchs and things and people like that into Bitcoin, you know, there's already been the U.S. contacting centralized exchanges to freeze the Russian accounts and things like that, which Binance actually replied saying we cannot do that because it goes against, you know, what our company value is. You know, at the end of the day, if regulation steps in, all these exchanges will be in trouble. So what we're seeing here is massive spikes of spot purchases of BTC. But in contrast, dominant spikes, Ethereum wallets over 1,000 Ethereum, downtrending. Ethereum wallets over 10,000 Ethereum, downtrending. Ethereum wallets over 100 Ethereum, downtrending as well. Meaning that the purchase yesterday, noticed in the dominance chart as well, was purely a Bitcoin spot purchase. And one single block yesterday recorded over $9 billion in traded volume on one block mined yesterday for Bitcoin. So there's this massive interest spike in Bitcoin. 
And, you know, obviously the pump that we got is very uncharacteristic. And just to do some TA levels, you know, right now, based on our linear, linear regression model, we are looking overbought, our RSI is overbought. So we do need a slight pullback to that 41, 42K level before we can get some strength and bounce and continue up to our mid 50s. And what I do think is going to take place at that point is once we hit 50K again, we're going to see a euphoric uptake of, of retail. So we could very easily see a strong move from here to the mid 50s. Whether we get rejected there, in the region of our bull market support band, there's a lot of moving averages in that region. We could put in a dead cap bounce and ultimately plummet back down to the low 20s, or we could push, consolidate in those levels and actually have a run and a crack at a new all-time high. So basically, in the short term, things are looking pretty bullish. In the medium term, things are looking rocky. Long term, always bullish. But right now, the the general macro market, what's happening with the geopolitical tensions in Europe, with the sanctions being um, implemented against Russian citizens with the bank runs happening all over the world. I mean, there was a, an interesting tweet um, made by Eric Weiss basically saying Russia's Russia bank run, people are buying Bitcoin. The Ukrainian bank run, people are buying Bitcoin. The Canadian bank run, people are buying Bitcoin. Oligarchs are buying Bitcoin. Inflation is leading to uptake in Bitcoin as it's a hedge. So everyone's smart enough to see this as buying Bitcoin. You know, on, a, on, a, on, a, um, on another level, you know, we, we're noticing that people are starting to realize the power of censorship resistance. And people are realizing that, you know, in the Ukraine, for example, and in Russia, they have limited bank withdrawals to a couple thousand dollars. Yet a single plane ticket to leave Russia is priced at over $15,000 now. So people cannot even withdraw money to fly out of their own countries. And there was another tweet made by uh, Jason, uh, I cannot pronounce his surname, but basically, the tweet was this picture of a metro line in Moscow saying Apple Pay and Google Pay no longer work on Moscow's metro system. And basically, there are these massive queues and civilians and citizens are largely being affected because of all, this, all these sanctions being imposed on, you know, Russians and Ukrainians and all these, you know, based around this geopolitical issue. And, you know, another thing that we're, we're seeing here is that a lot of European banks are dependent on the Russian economy. So the more sanctions getting imposed, the better it is for Bitcoin, but also it's leading to a lot of issues with traditional banking sectors in other European countries. For example, France is one of the countries that has the highest dependence on the Russian economy. And if the Russian economy continues to crumble, more sanctions get imposed, the French banking system you know, starts seeing issues. And there's a problem there that banks could default you know, so there's there's all these issues happening in centralized ecosystems. And this has honestly become one of the, I'm going to say this loosely, and, you know, obviously I don't want to be, um, I want to be sensitive to the situation, but it's become one of the biggest marketing materials for cryptocurrency and what it is. And Q, I mean, also just, just to add another point is obviously, um, you know, Germany is, and the rest of Europe, the rest of the world is highly, highly dependent on Russia for their energy, uh, their energy supply. And, and we, we're seeing this really tug of war between, you know, trying to harness a or, or limit an aggressor um, being Putin by through financial pain sanctions. But we have this funny thing where the West is reliant on Russia to for its energy. 
and obviously the Europe being in winter right now, we can't we can't shut off the lights or the heating. Um, you know, you can't just cut off Russia from the the banking payment system with this or SWIFT the SWIFT system, the messaging system, which banks use to um, communicate transactions. Um, now that's just a, another layer on top. And John, so you covered a lot. Just as we dive into all of this going on, there, there's there's a lot. There's a lot of uncertainty. You mentioned this could be one of the biggest bull cases for Bitcoin. Let's bring in your guy and Tradvine. I want to ask you a, a quite a hard philosophical question potentially, but is this actually a bad thing for crypto potentially? The sentiment that I was gathering on Twitter within some threads and people covering Ukraine, covering Ukraine, Russia and sort of saying, oh, well, crypto is going to be the safe haven, that crypto is going to be where Russia is going to go. That's how they're going to sort of save themselves from financial sanction. Is this actually a bad marketing thing for crypto because now you're getting people who maybe aren't in the know about crypto, seeing it from the outside and seeing Bitcoin as a vehicle being used by Putin who's being painted as the villain? Well, yeah, I mean, he is obviously the main aggressor, um, you know, from the West perspective. Is that not a bad thing for crypto? What's your thoughts, Luca? I think we're 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 in an we're in an intermediary phase. Um, I mean, we're not fully institutional yet. We're kind of transitioning. So I think there are some risks that opponents to cryptocurrencies more broadly sees this as evidence. You know, if 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 right, like I mean, there's a lot of misinformation. There's a lot of you know a lot of people tweeting things. It's it's very hard to verify if you know, Russians are using cryptocurrency to circumvent sanctions or whether, more importantly, whether institutions are using cryptocurrency to help Russians circumvent sanctions. So I think on the one hand, there, there is a risk, right, because we're not fully integrated yet. Um, whereas on the other hand, it's extremely hard to actually prove it. Just, so basically, uh, to, to put a label on crypto as being, I mean, it's the same thing with criminal activity, right? You know, you could you could take, it's always the case that if you have a data set and you take two data scientists and they look at this data set, they'll, they'll probably come to different conclusions or said differently, you know, if you really, if you have a data set and you, you're really looking for something, if you look at that data set long enough, you'll find it, basically. But you, you just have this natural bias which is very hard to kind of separate from the, the, the task at hand. So I think, you know, you'll have people coming out after this saying, well, the, the, the cryptocurrency proponents will say, no, you know, they'll point to the donation efforts in Ukraine, which were largely led through cryptocurrency, right? Like the Ukrainian government posted addresses, uh, many prominent uh, crypto influencers, builders contributed, right? Gavin Wood. Uh, founder of Polkadot contributed $5 million uh, worth of DOT, I believe. They and raised um, $10 million, $10 million yeah. worth of Bitcoin and Ethereum over the weekend. Exactly. Well, so, Binance so the alone contributed will... $10 million worth of Bitcoin. <laughs> so, so the proponents will point to the kind of humanitarian aspect, right? You're not limiting people's access to cash. I think, I think institutions like Binance have and I think Kraken as well have, have made the right decision 
to kind of say, no, we can't kind of cut off regular users, but opponents to cryptocurrency are definitely going to seize this as more fuel. Um, yeah. And that, and that's oh, also, yeah. uh, sorry, Q, go for it. No, I just, I just wanted to say, I wanted to just echo that point that I think in this whole circumstance, there's a small group of users that will likely use cryptocurrency for, you know, with bad intent. But if you look at the populations, all the civilians and citizens that have been affected by this and cannot withdraw their money from bank accounts, you know, like crypto is their savior. So it is the safe haven for a lot of people like that. People trying to flee the country, you know, yeah. you can you you can freeze a bank account, you know, you can seize a home, you know, you can you can seize assets like that. You know, you can put sanctions on those things, but one thing that you cannot seize is a cold wallet with Bitcoin on it. It's it's that simple. And the thing is, it is becoming a safe haven asset, you know, in the sense of what's happening on a broader scale. And one other thing that we're noticing is over the past two, three days, Bitcoin has completely uncorrelated itself from the stock market, from gold, from all these other underlying risk, like other risk adverse assets. And it's, I don't know, I, th I think it's a strong bull case. And, and yes, you know, oligarchs will likely make use of cryptocurrency as an exit of funds. But at the end of the day, you know, how many oligarchs are there versus how many Ukrainian and Russian citizens that need something like this? To put some numbers to that, uh, everyone, the S&P 500 is down 1% in the last five days, which basically takes you back to invasion. Bitcoin is up 15%, which is absolutely <laughs> mind, mind blowing. But just, oh, yeah, sorry, Luca. I just want to make one, one point before we jump uh, to the next thing, just on the macro picture. It's, it's worth remembering that all these economies are super interlinked, right? Like it was possible for the EU and the US to kind of come in together and say, let's freeze like a majority of uh, the assets of Russia's central bank. The thing is, it's like all these economies are super interlinked. As far as I uh, know right now, Russia is still supplying gas to Europe. Some of those pipelines are going through the Ukraine. So I think, I think we might be getting close to the bottom if, if this was not the bottom just yet. I think definitely the macro picture, like there are lots of kind of pressures. Um, but at the end of the day, I think this conflict will blow over. And uh, people will probably look back, you know, just to echo your point, John T, on uh, previous conflicts as being uh, kind of by the dip opportunity. Um, people will probably look back at this one and then um, have, have seen a similar opportunity. But, okay, yeah, that, that's a great point. That's a, actually a better point for me to segue from, Luca. And, I mean, obviously we're only five days in. And I think we you've already mentioned that there's a lot of misinformation going around. We're not sure in the West what information is actually being distributed to us. There's been a lot of, I've read at least or heard about a lot of um, sort of distortions with intel that is coming out of Russia and Ukraine and that sort of stuff. And basically the point I'm trying to make is that with that environment, we are in in an extremely uncertain spot, I feel, right now. And just framing, framing from, a, from the way I see it, and, and like I said again, you know, making a disclaimer that I'm not a geopolitical expert, framing the way I see it with 
where Putin's position is being allies with China and the West, where the UK, the UK, the US, Canada, where they are in their cycle and everything that's happened. I think the All In guys have sort of documented this a lot about how there's been this huge debt cycle and everything's sort of been been sort of building up to sort of a conflict, right? Ray Dalio speaks about these 80-year cycles between wars and peacetime and wars and debt cycles and everything. So um, I think that's something worth digging into more as, uh, if you're in the audience. But what I'm trying to say is things are very uncertain. We don't know what Putin may do tomorrow. So my question to you, John, says if there was another Black Swan event, maybe, you know, Putin bombs Kiev tomorrow, all-out war, and maybe starts invading another country, and or something like this happens, and essentially all hell breaks out, or something just doesn't go as as planned. What then? Basically, I mean, is crypt is Bitcoin still gonna go past forty five, fifty? I mean, I mean, what can we even? Can we even have a debate about what's going to happen there, or, or sort of try and try and uh, sort of speculate? Beyond that, I I can't see how we can even think about what's going to happen. Well, you know, Black Swan events are very difficult to prepare for because you know there's a reason that Black Swan event you know just happens. It's a capitulation event amongst a lot of markets where people just have extreme fear, and I think. You know, if, if let's say a nuclear a nuke gets dropped or fired or something like that, you know, we get massive tensions or Russia now decides to invade, you know, the NATO border. And, you know, there's there's so many different things that could happen from this war. Uh, just to be honest, from what I've seen on the news, obviously, you know, what we're seeing on news here in South Africa could be vastly manipulated from what's actually going on in the country. But it seems like you know, Russia are up against more resistance than they expected. And, you know, things aren't going necessarily as planned from what I've seen on, you know, various media posts and things like that. So, again, I don't think the war will escalate further from this point. That's just my opinion. I think that, you know, maybe it goes on another week or two. But, you know, if another black swan event is to occur, you know, there's still the a low probability, but there's still the argument for a 20K Bitcoin retest. And, you know, if we if we look at any black swan events, you know, further 50 percent drop from here will put us perfectly at that, that price target. So it's kind of like it'll be in line with the bear case for Bitcoin, where we'll likely consolidate for a couple months and then make our way back up again. But, you know, th there's basically three scenarios that can happen here. Black swan event down to 20K. Uh, we get a push to above the bull market support band, but ultimately don't hold the line and break down or we get a push above the bull market support band which is that mid 50 we bounce and go up and two of those cases point back to low 30s to low 20s and one case points to all-time highs so it's kind of like how are you going to play the market um you know what, how do you want to approach this what is your outlook and are you prepared for both and basically you know right now i mean my portfolio is about 70 percent cash 30 percent in the market and I'm using that 70% cash to possibly get some little swing trades. But until we flip bull market support band, I'm not confident that we're not going to go down to 20K on a black swan event. That being said, if we do get a black swan event, what we have seen over the past couple of days due to what's happening in the world, like we've seen that crypto bounces 
way harder than any other asset. And regardless of whether we get an 80% capitulation event in Bitcoin, if you don't buy that dip, not, not altcoins, if you don't buy that Bitcoin dip, like you are going to be missing out because look at any black swan event, 70% crash, 50% pump the next day. And whether we come back down to that crash event, to those low levels, you still got that pump that you can, that you can capitalize off. So black swan events create more opportunity than we, than we expect. They're scary to, to be, to see and witness, but they're only scary if you're over leveraged in the space. And this kind of just moves into a point that I wanted to make was, you know, we're having all this interest and, and, and monetary drive and, you know, liquidity flood into Bitcoin. But the biggest question that people are wondering is, is that liquidity going to flow into altcoins or is it just going to slowly bleed back the Bitcoin price? And, you know, this is where I was chatting with Luca earlier today, where there's this, been this incredible rebalance in the top 10 to top 20 coins. And what we're seeing is a lot of low cap projects and things like that are getting absolutely annihilated during these uncertain periods. But the projects that are doing incredibly well, like Terra Luna, you know, Ethereum's been holding ground, Bitcoin's been doing amazing. You know, you've got Phantom with this massive explosion in like activity, both on a developer front and a user front. Quality is what's going to move forward. And regardless of how the market works at this point, if we go down, have dry powder to buy the quality. If we go up, run the quality and basically just capitalize of what the market does, but don't over leverage yourself so that if we do get a black swan event, you're not going to be sitting on your ass. Make sure you've got something to take advantage of that black swan event. Don't capitulate like you were about to say. Um, yeah. And like I, I, I'm just playing, you know, obviously playing devil's advocate there. You know, you mentioned earlier about the, the media that you're seeing and stuff is sort of shows that Ukraine is putting up more resistance. There's also stuff that I've seen that also shows the contrary and which I'm just underlying that we're going into a very uncertain time and perfectly just to echo, you know, Jonty sticking to the fundamentals, um, you know, look for the value bets and stick to those DCAN, as you would say, Jonty, I'm taking words out of your mouth. And, um, <laughs> you know, I think also people that I've been looking, following closely is people like Balaji, um, who is putting out, has put out great geopolitical content in the context of crypto. And, you know, he reckons that the best, best case outcome right now is that Ukraine and Russia agreed to ceasefire. I'm literally reading one of his tweets, I think it was today. Um, Ukraine and Russia agreed to ceasefire. Ukraine says they won't join NATO. They don't need it, clearly. Putin gets to declare a win, in quotation marks, pulls back. Nuclear crisis averted, which I guess is the biggest risk. And then Alexei Navalny allies with, uh, allies with Vitalik to win a real election and rebuild Russia. Um, that's obviously best case scenario. The opposite of that, I would suspect, is, is worst case. We're only five days in. I think a lot, a lot still has to unravel and, and has to happen. And we also have to realize the real threat that Putin poses to the, re to the West allied with China, obviously the, the up and coming superpowers and how are they going to contest <clears throat> for global dominance over the next, you know, decade and positioning yourself accordingly, i.e. in something like Bitcoin, Ethereum, 
you know, decentralized, permissionless st- uh, store value is going to is going to probably, you know, serve you well, like we were speaking about last last week. Luca, any uh, any comments on uh, or just to tear tear I'm, a hole I'm in what I was saying? You guys, uh, how you guys feel having spent half an hour on geopolitics? I think that's a, I think that's a first on the pod. That's definitely that's definitely a first on the pod. But I feel like we we did pretty well uh, <laughs> framing it in within crypto. <laughs> I um, mean, the only thing, like to say it bluntly, like I only care about this from a crypto perspective. I'm not a politician. I hate politics. So I kind of try to stay out of it as much as possible. And the fact of the matter is none of us are on the ground there. So I don't think we really have a standpoint to make sound political comments on, you know, the tensions that are at hand. But I think from an economic perspective and a Bitcoin perspective, I feel like we can say a few opinions, you know. <laughs> Which is always the dis- – and again, we'll make the disclaimer. We're not geopolitical experts. Look at biology. Look at all of the other ex- – the real experts in the space. Um and if you, I, I don't know. If you, if, if you want my opinion, I, I've initiated autobuys again. Well done. Last week. So every day, my uh, autobuy bots are, are buying. Yeah, look, you, you gotta love, you gotta love those. Good, that's a good, good DCA. Um, I don't know about you guys though, but <laughs> over the weekend, uh, my Twitter, as this, everything was breaking with you know russia and ukraine and following that i think around every third tweet was about how someone either loved pixelmons or they got absolutely rugged on mint from the pixelmon nfts and um (laughs) i know luca is he's gone on mute because he's licking his licking his lips uh at the prospect of uh destroying pixelmons but do you want to maybe layer this up luca um to give context, uh, I think it was a couple of ex- episodes ago uh, on our NFT Red Pull episode, I chatted about Pixelmons or mentioned them and how they looked sus- suspect. And uh, over the weekend, they finally released their uh, their NFT. Luca, yeah, what are your thoughts? I saw a tweet, I think this summarizes it perfectly. Uh, someone, someone basically tweeted... They, they were confused after the minting. After the minting, uh, they thought they got uh, some land in the metaverse rather than a pixel mon. But what what actually ended up happening, and this is for a three ETH mint, by the way, um, so roughly nine thousand dollars at the moment. Uh, what actually ended up happening is they paid a freelancer less than one ETH. If I if I got my numbers right, yeah, less than one ETH. Uh, netted $70 million. So cost base is roughly an ETH, $70 million profit, selling people these 3D rendered NFTs, but it was a complete flop. And and for some people, the NFTs didn't even render, so it looked like they, they got a, a plot of grass, basically, or something. And now you've kind of got, <laughs> yeah, you've kind of got uh, two camps, You've got the, the delusional followers which still think there's uh, value locked up in this uh, project and, and you've got the people uh, waking up to the reality that they've uh, sunk thousands of dollars into a nothing burger and uh, are left holding the bags. I really encourage everyone on the on the pod 
to, to have a look at these NFTs um, and ask yourself the question, what, what actually needed to happen for us to get to this point? How did we arrive here that people can make $70 million of garbage, basically, and face zero repercussions? Like this, this, I mean, this is, is the watershed moment yeah. for NFTs. It is going to be so difficult from this point onwards to win people's trust, basically. And it's worth like, saying that we've been calling for this for weeks. For weeks. I mean, I mean, guys, guys, let's be honest. What, three episodes ago, we were talking about three NFT rug pulls a day. And you saw oh, that was last week. Hunting for projects. That was last John, week. John, so, that was last week. I mean, but. But let's just look at some of the biggest rug pulls this past week, like Lana Rhodes. I was mentioning to you guys earlier. For for those that don't know, she's she was you know one of Logan Paul's video, uh, you know one top porn star for the year or something. You know she rugged her own project because people are making rude comments in the Discord. You know it's it's so easy. You know there's also that <laughs> that famous tweet of you know the Dragon Ball Z characters flying other characters and it's like influencers on their way to use their communities as exit liquidity. It's, it's, it's so obvious that NFTs, as amazing as the technology is, actual NFTs and the basis that we interact with them today is so flawed. You know, Moxie made a vital point about it, how it's this awful cross bridge, well, this cross uh, development between centralized and decentralized entities, and it kind of uses the worst of both ecosystems or both technologies. What was the example there, Jonti? Basically, for some NFTs, it's like, the Im the image isn't connected to the NFT you own. Your NFT points to like a database somewhere which holds the image. So you could pay like thousands of dollars for an NFT. Uh, and then if there's a, a hack of this database, basically, someone could literally change the image connected to this basically string of data that you own to, to show anything like... Yeah, or if someone finds the, the if essentially if someone finds the metadata link to where that where the database is pointing, they essentially can um, sort of capture your NFT from you. Yes. So basically, the, the infrastructure aspects we've highlighted, uh, there's a long way to go. This Pixelmon thing. I'm, I'm at a loss for words. I, I really I, I hope it gets better. Um, from here, I, I really think it was a watershed. I mean, seventy million dollars. Um, yeah. And Luca, just to just to frame, just to put another layer on it, put some numbers. The top three Pixelmon species and their flaws, right? Their flaw prices. You've got Kevin, number one, which was six fifty ETH, or I think this was maybe a flaw at some point uh, over the weekend when they had minted or something. You have Bormon, 2.3 ETH. Nomnom, 1 ETH. And literally, these look these look no better than Minecraft characters. I, I think everyone just go and have a look on Twitter, uh, type in Pixelmons and you'll see for yourself. And putting that into context, Bored Apes minted last year, April, for 0 0.08 ETH. 0 0.08 ETH. And Bored Apes, with everything, the fundamentals of that community, everything that the, the NFT actually gives you, the cultural phenomenon that it has become, minted at that price. So, 
going from there to here to me is just straight up exploitation. This team behind Pixelmons is anonymous. They they promised a game, a P2E game, with a slapdash trailer. Not much else in not much else given out until this point, and then you get these releases, and you just have to look at it and and question what is actually going on in this in the space if you're not you know if you haven't been woken up already <laughs> i suggest waking up pretty soon before you get burned but 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 to be honest guys like if if you're trying to trade the nft market right now i mean <laughs> like there's an 80 percent chance you're gonna get right so do not trade with funds you can't afford to lose there's so many projects out there promising the world, but none of them are actually delivering. And, you know, it's it's so easy. This brings us back into so many conversations we've had over the weeks where, you know, most project founders are, under, are not, not experienced. They're young. They, they don't actually know what they're doing, you know, and they sell a promise with zero intention of actually fulfilling the roadmap. And people are just getting wrecked. I mean, Pixelmon Floor, 0.4 ETH from, you know, an average 3 ETH Mint. From I mean, 3 Mint. Getting, yeah, 3 ETH Mint. I mean, people are getting wrecked. And it's for garbage. Like Lucas said, absolute fucking garbage. And the thing is, people, you know, play this NFT hype like, no, NFTs are the future. Yes, they are. They're an aspect of the future of GameFi and Metaverse. But what we interact with today is not what they're going to be in five years. So while NFTs, the technology, is going to be brilliant over the coming years of development, you know, this whole JPEG narrative is just a load of shit, to say it bluntly. I mean, board apes are cool. Punks are cool. You know, Genesis Kongs, they're cool. They're cool projects. Like, it's quite trendy to have one if you, you know, it's like a nice flex to have if you've got the, the money in the bank and you can risk 5 10% of your portfolio on a JPEG like that just to access those communities and network. But if you're buying Pixelmons, I'm sorry, you deserve to lose your money. Like that's that's all I can say. <laughs> There's always we, we always have to have the one brutal take from from Quinet, uh, per pod episode, and that was then and that was it. Um, and uh, well, and then just to just to then draw a line to actually you know good products, good teams, uh, you know, good sort of projects that are actually delivering value. Um, Q and Luca, you guys uh, sunk your teeth into uh, the Mars protocol um, over the past week. Uh, maybe, Luca, you want to take us away on breaking it down and uh, why you're very bullish on the on the protocol and, and what it's about, drawing a comparison to these uh, trash NFT projects that are being thrown out every single day. Sure. I mean, I think on the one hand, you know, Pixelmon was a watershed moment and it, and it, and I think it comes at a, at a fitting time because you know we we mentioned earlier in the pod that the top 20 is starting to look strong in other words quality is prevailing capital is shifting into strong uh, fundamentally sound um, ecosystems um, that has a that is kind of a downstream effect because basically treasuries are able to allocate grants to up and coming developer teams, new projects. And you kind of have an environment where um, innovation can happen. And so, I mean, Terra Money, Terra Money, Terraform Labs, 
is no stranger to innovation. I mean, they, they've set the benchmark interest rate for decentralized finance through Anchor Protocol, basically. And we've got a new Terra project, um, which is currently in phase two of launch at the moment, Mars Protocol, and which is just another uh, first-in-class um, example of why we're here. Mars Protocol is basically taking a stab at uncollateralized lending. So one of the core issues in decentralized finance today is if you take if you take out a loan against crypto, you generally have to provide more than one dollar per dollar you're taking out. And although you can get tokenized versions of this deposited collateral and earn yield on it, you still have this fundamental limitation in terms of credit creation where you you need at least the amount of capital that you're wanting to loan and you need to lock that up. Whether you are basically whether you're basically able to access that liquidity after you've locked it up is an open question, uh, but you need to lock it up. And, and that's a fundamental limitation to credit creation. Um, and now Mars Protocol, it, it's going to function in a similar way to what you would imagine a bank functioning like. So it, it, it calls itself the red bank. Basically, you're going to have people depositing, they're going to earn yield on the deposits, and then Mars is going to engage in contract-to-contract lending. So you could visualize your standard retail bank taking deposits and lending it out to another bank, basically. And so what you end up happening what you end up having here is basically people deposit, they earn yield, they can borrow. But then you have this additional layer where basically the red bank is earning interest on latent deposits. And in that way you've got better capital efficiency. And the execution of this project is incredible. So I think I think it's wonderful to see the top twenty in crypto kind of really sending a strong signal of quality. We've got innovation and, you know, we've got innovation inside these ecosystems. We've got really the building blocks are starting to come together. And, you know, here we've got, here we've got Mars Protocol. So, you know, there is this stark contrast at the moment. Don't get swept up in the death throes of the NFT craze. Be patient and uh, you'll be rewarded, yeah. As uh, your guy in TradFi always says, be patient and earn yield. That's, <laughs> that's, uh, your, that's your slogan. But Luca, quick question uh, before we start winding it down. That model that Mars Protocol uses, obviously the uncollateralized lending and then being able to utilize that capital that actually has that's not locked away in a vault like most of DeFi is, is that not clearly the most optimal DeFi protocol model and why do so why do then you know most DeFi protocols not operate in that way yeah so we we exist in a trustless space but to have uncollateralized lending you do need an element of trust so this takes us back to that whole discussion of digital credentials Mars is basically saying we're gonna they're limiting the smart contracts that can borrow from the red bank initially 
So there is an element of trust being layered on a trustless system. There's no limitation in terms of accessing the Red Bank as a standard retail client, but on the, this is quote unquote institutional level, there is an element of trust because uh, you can't just code up your own smart contract and drain the Red Bank. It's, it's, it's extremely complicated to implement as well. Um, so I, you know, I think it's just, you have all these different layers, you know, we needed, we needed the inefficient credit markets before we could kind of get to the efficient credit markets. It's like one thing follows the other and I'm really excited for the launch. We're going to see. So, so the, the one thing to bear in mind here is there is risk, of course. Because it's uncollateralized, you are now taking a risk. If you are seeding liquidity for the Red Bank, which uh, we on the pod have done, um, you know, you could end up being wiped out if the bank fails. Much in the same way you would, you could see that happening in uh, kind of the real world. Well, I guess maybe I shouldn't use real world. <laughs> uh, the the traditional finance ecosystem. Well, we are living in a fantasy crypto land world. It, it does uh, feel like magic, magic infinite money, money right? Yeah, yeah <laughs> magic infinite money. But Luca, it's also fascinating to hear your language change. Also, just I noticed there with talking about the Mars Mars Protocol and using bank and you know credit markets, and it's it's the shadow it's the shadow credit markets or shadow banking markets being created in crypto, which is. A fundamental change of mindset, I guess, where rewind 10, 10 years ago, 10 years back, and people could never imagine this happening um, beyond their wildest dreams, I guess. Um, one final question to both of you, I guess, or maybe Q can jump in here. Interesting, you know, you guys pointing out about how the top 20 of crypto is looking really robust, really strong, all top projects. Is there, and, and I mean, I remember seeing a picture of like the top 10 in 2013. The only name I recognized on that list was Bitcoin, number one. And then the other nine, I, I have no idea. I think Litecoin was up there and obviously, which is now out of the top 20. But do you guys see, I mean, is there potential in another five, 10 years? And maybe these cycles are going to be longer now because of crypto is more established. Could we ba Could we see another reshuffling like do you expect the rate of innovation to be that great that the top 20 will get displaced again? How do you guys think about that? Is, or are we now getting to this place where the network effects are too sticky? I mean, I, I, I think that we're always going to see a reshuffle of the top cryptocurrency players. You know, cryptocurrency, you know, while it's while it grows as an industry, is going to have a lot of projects that succeed and a lot of projects that fail. Um, so what we see today, I think the constants that will carry through over the decades to come, well, Ethereum and Bitcoin will always be in the top 10. And I think that's going to remain fact for a very long time. But the one thing I do see fundamentally changing as global adoption kicks in is the uptake of stable coins. And I wouldn't be surprised if majority of top 10 cryptocurrencies over the next decade, excluding Bitcoin and ETH, are made up of a bunch of decentralized stable coins. Interesting um, point. You know, Reason being is, you know, people can think think about your parents using cryptocurrency as a banking system. You know, the, the biggest arguments against cryptocurrency is that it's not a sound form of money because it's because due to its volatility and the fact that, you know, it, it can't retain value. You know, thirty five dollars 
in Bitcoin for a coffee today might be $450 for a coffee in three years time. You know, it's, it's not sound money, but when you look at a, a fiat reserved currency or pegged currency, it's a lot easier to wrap one's head around transacting with UST or transacting with a dollar fundamentally is the same thing, just in a decentralized space versus centralized space. So I do see especially banks and governments uptake, like use, you know, adopting Bitcoin, adopting cryptocurrency as, you know, means of, you know, balance sheets, payments, all these different fundamental technologies and use cases of the cryptocurrency space. But I think mass adoption will largely pin towards stable coins. And we've seen that through the uptick of UST. Look at how, you know, terrorist, terrorist stable coin pegged to the dollar has just moved in market cap and valuation over the past year. And people are ultimately looking for this. I mean, you know, an argument for the Russians, you know, people are entering the space through Bitcoin. But what happens when Bitcoin has volatility swings, which they're not used to? You know, they're going to want to get back out into dollars, but they're going to realize that they can't go back to bank accounts because their accounts are being sanctioned or frozen. So what do they turn to? A dollar-backed stablecoin. Tether is regulated by the government. Your Tether account can be frozen. USDC the same. So the only other option is algorithmically pegged or truly decentralized stablecoins, and that's where UST pins as the leading one. So I do see a shift towards a stablecoin-based future of the cryptocurrency market, especially when it comes to the simplified banking sector that decentralized finance offers. But outside of that, I see top layer one protocols staying strong. You know, I can see a future where Polkadot is one of the top contending blockchains as it kind of solves, it's the layer zero, you know, of the multi-chain future. I, you can look at something like, you know, Phantom potentially, growing into a behemoth for yield farming because of how its DAG mechanism just improves and is so much more efficient on what proof of stake is trying to be. So you can see all these like underlying technologies, but one thing I can say is going to fall out of the top 20 is meme coins will eventually dissipate. <laughs> it's going to be, it's going to be a couple of years. I think Dogecoin and Shibu will remain top 20 for another five years because of meme culture. But, you know, ultimately things will filter down. But I do see a predominant stablecoin top 20 in the coming years. And, and to underpin your it. point, uh, John, sorry, we've, uh, we, we've got DAI, Terra, US, USD, Binance, USD, USD coin, USDC, and Tether all in the top 20. So that's to underpin your point. Um, boys, we also have our first caller. I think I'm going to bring up uh, Scott here. Luca, any first thing you want? Did you want to add something before we bring up Scott? No, no. Let's bring up the caller. This is a first. This is a first for us. See what happens when you break a hundred hundred followers. What's up, Scott? <laughs> hey, everybody. Thanks for thanks for letting me up here. Um, awesome to be the first caller here today. You, um, you are our first caller ever. Oh, amazing! Well, I'm. Excited, but now nervous. <laughs> no, <laughs> <don't>. <laughs> um, I just wanted to echo uh, what Q was mentioning. You know, I think that's a really insightful thing that as adoption continues to tick up, especially with uh, more individuals that want that kind of stability, um, the stable coins are, are going to be predominantly in that top 20 range. And I was curious, I wanted to ask as well, I'm not sure if anybody else here is seeing this, but I 
I use USDC for a lot of different things. The um, Ethereum version, I guess there are different versions. I forget exactly how that works, but um, you know, myself and, and some other friends in the crypto space now are just using that almost like Venmo and and sending USDC via Coinbase. Um, and I was wondering if anybody else is seeing something like that happen. Um, but that's another area that I think, especially for certain stable coins where Coinbase will not um, uh, charge for a transfer, um, you know, you're going to probably see some usefulness there where, you know, none of us want to take it out because to take it out has all sorts of, um, you know, hoops that you have to jump through right now. And so it's just easier to kind of keep a balance in something like Coinbase and uh, use that for some transactions between um, either people or companies. So I don't know if anybody else is seeing that, but I just wanted to mention, I think that's another case for uh, the growth of stable coins as it's just easier and easier to, to transact and use those. Um, we're even seeing some, I'm blanking on the name right now, but I know uh, we saw a company recently that's letting you now pay bills in USDC and I want to say die. I forget why they picked that. But um, so, you know, with companies coming online to act as kind of a middle layer there as well, then it's going to be easier and easier to to pay bills using crypto, but presumably going through some sort of stable coin. So you're going to see the volume um, the, the daily volume of some of these stable coins really start to tick up as we see those use cases. So Fascinating. I think, Q, Q, you can speak to this more with your use of UST, right? Yeah. So, I mean, stable coins, there's a, there's a vast range of them. You've obviously got your custodial pegged ones like USDT and USDC, which are ultimately, well, I can't really speak for USDT, but are ultimately sitting in a centralized cash reserve or um, you know, collateralized by centralized or publicly listed companies. So the biggest issue with those is the idea of government regulation or censorship resist, or well, not being fully censorship resistant. Um, you know, we, we've seen in a lot of sort of criminal activity that tether accounts have been directly frozen, even if they're on a decentralized basis. So the, the, when it comes to general users and general adoption, I don't think that's going to be a concern. But for a lot of people, the whole narrative of pseudo-anonymity in cryptocurrency is a big thing. You know, for me personally, I'm trying to clean up my entire sort of transaction history that links back to any KYC accounts just to protect my privacy as well. And a lot of players in the space are starting to do that, especially as you know, various sanctions all over the world get implemented and how easy it is for people's bank accounts and, and, you know, their own finances, how easy it is for them to lose access to it. So I think there's a big argument and a big case for the adoption of algorithmically pegged stablecoins, which are things like DAI and UST, which are pegged to the dollar through an algorithm. For example, UST is pegged to the dollar through an arbitrage's market you know, and collateralizing them in a decentralized way, which means that there's no, they're fully censorship resistant. No one can freeze your accounts in UST. So I think there's going to be two kind of horns of adoption for stable coins. There'll be the route through Coinbase with USDC, as you've mentioned, Scott, you know, there'll be bull cases for all centralized stable coins because they're going to be the easiest and most efficient to use in many forms. 
but there's also going to be a massive bull case for decentralized stablecoins in you know the deeper crypto community where people want to retain their privacy. So yeah, yeah I think I think there's 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 a huge case for it. And you know a lot of companies, you know, you've got Apple Pay integrating Bitcoin, Cape, you've got all these companies starting to integrate cryptocurrency payments. I think it's 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 a few months away from stablecoins being interactive with this. I know. Luca, you told me today about a project that allows you to tap a credit card straight to your UST account. And, you know, yeah. you can be earning your 20% APY on Anchor Protocol, you know, and spending that 20% APY on UST as your living expense. And that can become your passive earning or your passive living. And, you know, there's just so many bull cases for a stable factor in crypto because everyone goes on about volatility. You know, people in the world want stability. And I think, yeah, Scott, you got it on the head there. Stablecoins will be that easy-to-use transaction. Also, from tax and regulation purposes, a lot of countries, there's gray area around cryptocurrency tax. And, you know, the, the, there's a base law in most countries. Obviously, the U.S. is more formalized, and Europe, some European countries are way more formalized as well. But majority countries out there only turn crypto into taxable event when you convert it to fiat. So by being able to hold it in a stable coin, it's technically still a digital asset with volatility nature because if it loses its peg, it's a risk on assets. And basically, you know, that becomes as a tax hedge as well. If you're in a country that is going through political turmoil, taxes climbing, for example, here in South Africa, you know, th there's, there's a lot of political issues leading to financial strain on a lot of people. So the argument for stable coins is massive. There's, there's a huge bull case for them. It's, just, it's definitely it's, a natural on-ramp and off-ramp for, for people onboarding normal people 100%. into crypto, you know. So, Scott, great points. I don't know if you have any other we're, – we're about to wind down the show. Um, any other points, yeah. comments, questions for the wizards as we call ourselves? <laughs> Sorry, I was late and again, really appreciate it. I just had one other question. Maybe you guys touched on this. So if so, just let me know and I'll go back and find it after the show is published. But um, with all of the news about crypt various crypto being donated um, to help uh, some of the Ukrainian people in their ongoing conflict, um, do you know how is that? I guess one of the questions that was running through my mind is incredible to see people do that and to support in that way but then what happens with it are they trying do they have to then convert it out to a local currency or are they using that currency just to pay other people so if they got a big donation of bitcoin they're able to use that bitcoin to pay for a certain type of service or have you guys heard about the details kind of in that next step layer we we well, didn't actually think... chat about that uh, but i interesting yeah. enough um q sorry before you jump into it but um, I actually was reading a few articles today. Interestingly, first of all, you had before the donations were made, you know, you had people like Vitalik going around Twitter saying, you know, be careful about links. There's been a boatload of scams already, which was really unfortunate with that situation. You know, having people literally getting scammed out of the money when they're trying to make a donation to the Ukraine. But once those official links did pop up, basically a lot of analytics and security firms it was reported that those bitcoins and, and ETH, I think more Bitcoin, as soon as a lot of a lot of them, as soon as they hit the wallet that uh, the Ukrainians had had uh, created to receive donations, they saw a huge uptick of bitcoins hitting centralized exchanges in the Ukraine, 
which obviously set, tells that you know that was being exchanged straight away for fiat or basically getting out of the crypto. So I think there was a question raised over that in the article, basically saying, would the Ukraine actually do that? Or would people in need of the, the capital actually do that? I mean, I guess there's, there's an argument for both sides where you, you needed to get into, you know, whatever the currency in Ukraine is or just fiat, maybe USD, you want to get into dollars. Um, but I feel like the skeptical point was being raised over, I, I got the sense that it was being raised over where, whether there were actually, uh, you know, good actors behind it, maybe just, uh, you know, essentially liquidating the, the, the donations they'd gotten and uh, making a run for it. So, I believe that's that's what was happening on the back end, but, but I guess uh, yeah, John's. The, the crypto is legalized in the Ukraine. There was a bunch of articles launched about them passing bills legalizing crypto as legal tender, um, because of the the war scenarios. So I think Bitcoin's become a form of payment in the Ukraine during this period. Um, I'm speaking loosely now, but I've read a lot of articles talking about the legalization of cryptocurrencies in the Ukraine since the 16th of Feb was the first article posting about it. So I think, you know, a lot of those donations are being spent in the form of their crypto or they're being withdrawn into, into government accounts. But yeah, I think, I think the spending of it's been, been easy since the, the, the law or the bill was passed allowing cryptocurrency transactions in the country. And probably just allowing people to, you know, get some capital as they flee the border in a decentralized permissionless way where they can, you know, they don't have to withdraw cash from the bank or, you know, take gold bars from under their mattress, essentially, like, literally, you were looking back at World War Two, like, what were people doing there back then? Um, you know, that's what people had to do to flee the border with all their assets. Now they can, they just need their private keys, and they, you know, they can have a sizable amount of cash to survive as they flee into, you know, Kazakhstan, Poland, basically the bordering countries. Um, that's all, that's all we've heard. Um, okay. Interesting. I hope that's answers well, the really, question, Scott. I really appreciate it and looking forward to joining the wizards here, uh, in a later show. So thanks again, you guys. Thanks Scott. And uh, shout out to your Thank show, you. the all, the all gin after party as well. Uh, I still need to tune into one of your live live shows but uh you've got a great show going there um seems like you Thank guys you. are really kicking off so uh, i think uh you know we'll have to repay the favor come on as a come on as a caller on your show yeah are, do you guys you guys listen to the all-in podcast then i i converted uh q and luca into fanboys last year <laughs> perfect <laughs> yeah we'd love to have you guys then so great stuff appreciate it Great stuff. Right, Much appreciated, everybody. Scott. Thanks for being our first uh, caller ever. And to everyone else who joined us in the live room, uh, we, we thank you a lot for always being part of the furniture, a lot of familiar faces all the time. And uh, for the Wizards, Galactic Q, and your guy in TradFi, thanks for another cracker of an episode. Um, and stay safe out there from uh, fake NFT projects trying to rug you. And, uh, you know, obviously, again, pledging our support to those suffering in Russia and Ukraine. Right, boys, we'll see you for episode 17. Bye-bye.